0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: And I think for most of us, if we really get this, well, it's gonna be a little bit troublesome, a little bit bothersome. We're to love our enemies. It's personal, it's possible, and it's practical. It's experiential, it's observable. If we're loving our enemies, they'll recognize it. Others will see it. It will become a living testimony that we are Jesus' people, truly.
0: In a new message entitled, Jesus' Most Difficult Teaching, we look at the end of Matthew chapter 5, and truly for many, these things are difficult. However, Pastor Sam guides us through the what and the how of loving our enemies as we look at Matthew 5, starting in verse 43.
1: Matthew 5, 43-48, Jesus' Most Difficult Commands. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is a relatively amazing passage because it's one very familiar to most of us. And yet the words of our Lord, able to speak to a young child. I think this is a passage that you could read to an Eight-year-old, and they pretty much get it, and uh, yet a scholar, a serious student, will find himself seriously or herself seriously challenged by looking into the same passage. The reason we've entitled this Jesus' Most Difficult Commands will become abundantly clear, if not already. I think it was Samuel Clemens some time back. We know him as um, Mark Twain. Bud said, I said, Matthew Twain, first service. That's because I'm all thinking about this. But he doesn't care. But uh, he said, it's not those things I don't understand in Scripture that bother me, but the things I do understand. And and I think for most of us, if we really get this, well, it's going to be a little bit troublesome, a little bit bothersome. First thing I'd like to draw your attention to, though, is something that you wouldn't immediately pick up on in the text he says you've heard it was said this has been the formula we've been seeing our lord use as he says this is what you've heard let me tell you how it really is i say unto you you've heard it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy you know there are at least three prohibitions in scripture to taking away from or adding to the scripture. One back in Deuteronomy, let me read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. A little later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verse 32, it says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. The book of Revelation, of course, concludes with a similar warning, and, and here's the point. At the time Jesus speaks these words, shares these concepts, the religious leaders of his day had really done both. They'd gone back to the book of Leviticus and a very specific command that we are to love our enemies as ourselves, actually love our neighbors as ourselves, excuse me. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They omitted the as-yourselves. How important is that? Well, you see, the way I love myself, and God wants us to sort of get a handle on that, is very practical. Unless something's really wrong with you, you got up today and brushed your teeth. If you didn't, people are probably leaning like this now away from you. and You combed your hair, and you washed your face, and you cleaned up. Why? Because we generally take pretty good care of ourselves. And he's saying he wants us to love one another, well, the way we love ourselves. He wants us to love our neighbor that way. Well, they omitted the, you know, as you love yourself part or as you care for yourself. And then they actually added these words, hate your enemy. Now, there is nowhere in the Old Testament that you will find a command from God to hate your enemy. There are some places where David and perhaps others say, hey, I hate those who hate you with a perfect hatred, or you know, I love those that love you. But God didn't command such a thing. No, this is actually God's heart, and you need to know because he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This has always been how he is and was and will always be. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now what Jesus is about to do is clear all that up. I say to you, first of all and foremost, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, if you have King James or New King James as I do, there are four commands here. If you have NIV or New American Standard or New Living Translation or some of the others, there are only two commands. Don't let it trouble you either way because Luke's rendition, Luke's... uh, His gospel record of these particular sayings of Jesus and teachings of Jesus, they include all four. And rather than go down the road of do these belong here, let's just say this. Jesus spoke them. They are authoritative because of that. These are his commands and all four of them spoken by his lips. And so those who like to discuss and debate textual issues, they rarely apply what the Lord is trying to say to them. They get into all of these heady things and forget he's trying to teach us something here. Love your enemies and then pray for those, as he says in the end there, uh, who spitefully use and persecute you. Now we'll deal with all four because all four apply. But uh, if you have a translation that leaves out the middle two, don't let it bother you. Just listen and it's going to all come together for you. Love your enemies. Three things we need to know about this command. First of all, it's personal. He's saying literally to me and to each and every one of you, I want you... To love your enemies. Well, it's even more than I want you to. He's commanding us to love our enemies. We'll see how important that is in a moment. So it's it's personal. He's dealing with us us as individuals and the way we relate to people around us. The second thing you need to know is because he commands it, that means it's possible. If God commands us to do the impossible, well, he'll make it possible. We see that often in a physical way in the scripture. He tells a guy who has a withered hand, here, hold out your hand. Well, the guy could have said, well, don't you see? That can't happen. No, he just did it. And in obedience to the command, he was enabled to do something he'd been unable to do previously. Jesus says to the man who never walked, rise up, take your bed and walk. And with the command comes the empowerment. How important is that to these teachings today, to these issues today? Oh, so important. Because if you set out in the energies of your flesh to obey the Lord, man, you are going to be radically and severely disappointed. You're going to end up saying, I'm an utter failure. Better to throw your hands up in the beginning and say, I don't think I'm capable of that. And the Lord will say, yeah, in your flesh or not, on your own, you can't. But but there is a way. And the first thing we need to know is he's speaking to us personally, individually, each and every one of us. second. He makes it possible. If he commands it, he not only gave us an example of it, but he will give us divine enablement for it. And then the third thing we need to know about this command to love our enemies is that it's practical, not abstract or philosophical. Now, for me, the idea of loving my enemies philosophically, I I like that. It's sort of a bumper sticker, a slogan, if you will. Love my enemies, yeah. But when it gets right down to it, well, you got to have an enemy first in order to love. And in order to have an enemy, well, that means that you've made an enemy. Whether you did it on purpose or by accident or they just became your enemy, all of a sudden you're experiencing confrontation. You're experiencing things we're all uncomfortable with. And one of the things I've noticed is things that we would do anything to avoid, things that we pray, oh, Lord, don't let that happen, He often allows. Why? It's our only opportunity to obey Him in some of these things. Now, I'm not out to make enemies, but I've made a few. And I found that, well, those were my opportunities to obey this specific command. Was I successful? I wish I could say, oh, yeah, always. But sometimes, yes. And more and more so as I grow in the Lord and, and become more like the Lord. And that's what he's doing in each and every one of us. So this is sort of the who and the what. We're to love our enemies. It's personal. It's possible. It's possible and it's practical. It's experiential. It's observable. If we're loving our enemies, they'll recognize it. Others will see it. It will become a living testimony that we are Jesus people truly. Well, he tells us how we can go about loving them. And and we'll come back to this word love in a minute because we're not done with it. But he says, bless those who curse you. This has to do with our words and Ordinarily, let's just take a step back. For some of you, it's just a few weeks, a few months, others a few years, some a few decades. Prior to coming to Christ, it wasn't most of our habit or pattern to bless those who cursed us. In fact, if someone cursed me, I just cursed them right back. And ordinarily, I tried to out-curse them. I was just, you know, I wanted to do more than they did, you know. And so, as a Christian, though, the first change that takes place, the first changes that take place are outward and observable. But here's what I experienced, and probably some of you are still going through it. You're still cursing them, but you're no longer doing it verbally, you see. Still happening in here. You're thinking, oh man, i just love to tell you what I think, you know. But I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to hold back. Well, that's sort of step one. We realize that, okay, I can get control of my mouth. But God wants control of our hearts. and He wants to change us so that we're not even thinking the curses. Now, here, here's the thing. I think that's part of why he says to bless them. Because it's difficult to bless them verbally while you're cursing them inwardly. Those two just, you know, they kind of, it's it just, they don't go together. They, they void each other out. And so, as to my enemies, he says, I want you to love them. And then how do I love them? He says, well, love them with your words. When they curse you, I want you to bless them. Love them with your works. When they hate you, I want you to do good to them. Now, again, as a non-believer, and I'm just sharing my testimony, I'm not saying this is how you are if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you're just kind of checking things out. But if you're anything like me, you might be this way. As an unbeliever, the idea of doing good to someone who hates me, that was absolutely foreign. I mean, the very best I could imagine and muster is not doing something bad to them, but actually doing good to them. That just seems like, well, that'd be going the extra mile. That'd be turning the other cheek. The very things we studied last time together. And so he's saying now, not only aren't we to retaliate, but we're to respond in a loving and godly and and appropriate way. So, As to our words, we're to bless. As to our works, we're to do good. As to our witness, he says, we're to pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. Now, Jesus not only commands us to do these things, he set the example. From the cross, if you remember, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. No man was ever more abused and more unjustly so than our Lord and Savior Jesus. And he prays for the very ones, that spat in his face, that plucked out his beard, that mocked him and ridiculed him from the foot of the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them. That's blessing those who've cursed you. That's doing good by those who hate you. Why? He was laying laying on that cross, nailed to that cross, in order to die for their sins and ours. And then the witness, pray for those who spitefully use you. Sometimes we think, well, okay, Jesus did it, but he was the son of God. How could I, a mere man, or how could you, a mere woman, how could that happen? How could we do such a thing? Hey, Stephen did it. First recorded Christian martyr there in the book of Acts. As they were stoning him for his witness to Christ. He said, Father, don't lay this sin to their charge. Don't put it on their account. He did the very thing Jesus instructs us here to do. So we're to love our enemies And we're to love them with our words, our works, and ultimately our witness. And there is no more powerful witness to an unbelieving world than they get something good in return for their evil. They see the love of Christ and the mercy of God in and through us. Now, this word love, and you must be aware that the Greek language itself is much more expressive than ours, and it's just... It was, of course, the perfect language for the New Testament. That's why God chose it and used it. They actually have four words that we would translate love. First is storge. We usually don't get into it, but I want to take you down this road because it's so important to our study today. Storge is the kind of love we feel within our family. It's the affection and love we have for parents and for children and for brothers and sisters. And and it just speaks of something that you don't have to think about it or try to work it up or make it happen. It's just there. We love our families. And then there's that word eros. We get our word erotic from it. But it's just talking about sensual love, physical attraction. Again, I don't think that's something you got to work up to or make happen. It just happens. And of course, then there's that third word, philos. It speaks of brotherly love, more than love between brothers, but between friends. The kind of affection and care and concern that many of us have for one another. And it's important to know that when he says to love our enemies, he he's not saying love them like you do your family. That would be unnatural for me to have an enemy and 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 say, well, yeah, I feel the same way I do toward my enemy as I do toward Pam or I do toward my boys. That just doesn't happen to me. And then it's certainly not be attracted to them sensually or sexually. That's not going to happen. And then he's not saying, just deal with them like your are friends. We're not. If we're enemies, we're enemies. And the Bible says, as much as is possible for me or for you, be at peace with all men. We're not even suggesting, nor is Jesus, that if you do all these things, your enemies will become your friends. Or they'll become family. I guess that can happen. But it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you love and you bless and you do good and you pray. And you know what they do? They just keep on cursing and and doing evil and taking advantage. And and so he's not saying if you do this, they'll do that. He's just saying this is what I want you to do. Why? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But but for this part, the word he uses, of course, is the word agape. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world... He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the love that God's demonstrated toward us. We didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. See, it's not that Jesus looked down from the cross and thought, I'm so attracted to those people, or I feel such affection for those people. That would have been unnatural even for Jesus, but he loved them unconditionally. And here's the deal. That kind of love is a choice. That's why when people say, well, I don't really feel like I could do it. It isn't about how we feel. It's a decision. It's a choice. It's a decision and a choice to obey the Lord. And if you say, well, I'm trying to love him. Well, then you really haven't connected properly with him because there's no trying to do something supernatural. I mean, try to fly. It won't happen. You know, And we might as well... Try to fly is try to love our enemies. If it's a work of our flesh, we'll fail. If it's a work of his spirit, it will happen. If we're abiding in him as he instructs us to, the fruit of the spirit will flow from our lives. The fruit of the spirit is love. And so we'll be able to do what otherwise would be impossible for us. To love our enemies, to, to, to bless and do good and to pray for those who really don't deserve it. And and ordinarily, we wouldn't have even thought of it. And so that's the kind of love he tells us where to share. That's the kind of love we're to demonstrate in word, in works, and in our witness. Now, there's yet one more sort of intricacy here, and then we'll get to the why of all of this. The Greek in these four commands, and they are commands here, and even if you just have the two in another translation, those two still fall into this category. They're second person plural, first of all. What that means is he's speaking to you. He first spoke to those who heard, and then later those who would read, and those they would read too. And so when he says you, he's speaking to each and every one of you. He's speaking to me. He's saying you, and he's saying you plural. Plural. So he doesn't mean some of you, but all of you. This is my will for you. That's what the Lord is saying to us. You, all of you, all who hear. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he actually uses the word all who hear. Now, lots of people were hearing words, but some people were hearing the concept, getting it, you see. And so uh, second thing, as it would relate to the Greek itself here, is that it's present tense and active. That means that it 's an ongoing responsibility. He 's not saying, "Hey, if somebody curses you, bless them and let it lie. Bless them and keep on blessing them. If they do evil, do good back. if, they, if they're you know persecuting or taking advantage, then, then practically, in, in an ongoing way. In a practical and demonstrable and observable way, he's saying, keep on loving, keep on blessing, keep on doing, keep on praying. And even if they keep on in whatever they're doing, you keep on doing what God told you to do. Why? Well, we're almost there. The last thing I got to share as it would relate to the language here is that this is an imperative. What that means is that it's not an option. It's a command. It's an absolute essential. It's impossible to rightly represent the Lord unless we do these things, unless we obey these commands. And imperatives are just that, not suggestions, not options, absolutes, commands, essentials. And so love your enemy. That's what he says, or your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We're to do it. We're to keep on doing it because he commands us to do so. Now, he gives us some reasons why, starting in verse 45. He says, first of all, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, a lot of people think that Everyone's a child of God, but the Bible says in order to become a child of God, you need to be born again into the family of God. And you don't do that by joining the church or going through some ceremony by being baptized or christened or or any of those things. In order to be born again, you need a spiritual relationship with the Lord. He tells Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. I'd say we all... You know, we've all made it that far. We're here. We were born of the flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit, he goes on to say. Marvel not that I say you must be born again. And so the picture is there's got to be this spiritual reality. And in order to call God Father, in order for that to be real and true, we need to be born again. And so when he says then you will be, or that you will be, you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, this idea of sons of it's tied into the language again. You see, if you were a son of peace, that would mean you were a peaceful man or a peacemaker. If you were a son of consolation, as Barnabas is called, that would mean you were someone who went out to console others. The idea being, because they didn't have as many adjectives or use them the way we do, that they would just say, if you were the son of someone, well, then that described what you were like. So son of peace, you're a peacemaker, son of consolation. You're a consoler. Son of God, you're going to be like God. And that's really what he's saying. He wants us to be like him. He chose us to be with him. He chose us to be transformed into people just like him and ultimately to go out and represent him. But you can't start representing him until you become more like him. And you can't become more like him unless you're with him and being transformed by him. And so he says, this is why, first of all, because we represent our heavenly father. And that's our first and foremost responsibility out in the world, that you may be sons, that people might recognize us as children of our father in heaven. And then the second reason is not just that we'd be recognized as his children, though the world does see goodness and, and attributes it to godliness. But the second thing is that we would know and they would know how he is, what he's like. It says, because he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, it's because of who he is and, and how he is and what he looks like and, and what he does. God is good to the grateful and the ungrateful. He's good to the just and the unjust. He's good to the good and the bad. And if you really get this today, it's going to help you greatly in your sharing with others. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. I believe God has incredible blessings awaiting any obedient believer. Things that disobedient believers miss out on and that unbelievers miss out on. But the message that we're to take to the world isn't just that they're bad or they're sinners or they failed i think most people really know that they might not like the terminology maybe you don't like being called a sinner if you don't you just don't really grasp that all there are well there's just sinners and then there's
0: god you see there's god who's perfect and there's us and we've sinned in ezekiel 36 26 the lord tells us i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you i've often found that when i begin to use this new heart When God begins to perfect his love in me towards others, and when I'm able to obey the commands we just studied, this coincides with my desire to do so. Stay tuned next time as we further explore this miracle. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam.